Good morning, everyone. Happy 4th of July. Happy 2nd of July. The significance um, in history of the 2nd of July is uh, the Joy Church summer party, which hopefully you guys are all staying for after service. We're having free hot dogs, only the best. And the youth, the Joy students, they're selling a barbecue plate, a pulled pork sandwich. I think this is true. All the sides, I don't know. But I do know they've been working on the meat all weekend. So it'll be good. And that, if you buy one of those uh, plates, you, it supports the teenagers going to youth camps. It's going to be so fun. We don't have one. We don't have two. We have three bounce houses. Zero for adults. So sorry. So sorry. You guys are going to have to rent your own bounce house for that. Well, maybe you can... Kick the kids out. I don't know. But it's going to be a really great time. Hopefully you all stay after for that. It's going to be awesome. Well, we are in a new series that we started last week, Three Hots and a Cot. I, I kept making jokes about it, and now I can't say it right. But um, this is all about the Apostle Paul's prison epistles. Try to say that <laughs> ten times fast. The, the Apostle Paul, he is someone who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament of your Bible. We call him apostle because he wasn't a pastor of one church. He really pastored and oversaw quite a few churches, and he was really instrumental, not only in the Bible that we read today, if he wrote two-thirds of our New Testament, a lot of what you're reading when you read the New Testament, Paul wrote it, but also he was really um, pouring into these new churches. And Unfortunately, because of his beliefs in Jesus, he was actually imprisoned. He was imprisoned multiple times uh, during his life. And during, during one of the imprisonments, he wrote what we call the prison epistles. This is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Whew, I, this is my, my helper right here. He'll correct my my biblical references here for me. But right, he wrote those four books. And so that's what we're going through these series. We're just going through these books. We're going through what Paul wrote about. Now, the book of Ephesians that Jake so masterfully started us in last week is such a great example of, um, it's such a pure gospel is what I'm trying to say. When Paul wrote this letter, this is a letter he wrote from prison to the church in Ephesus. A lot of Paul's letters that he wrote, as you read the New Testament, you can find this out. A lot of the letters that he wrote had a lot of uh, where he's trying to correct that specific church, right? He's writing it to a church, so he's saying, hey, you guys are having this problem. Here's how to fix it. Did you guys know the church had problems back then? Wow, isn't that amazing? You guys thought, I thought it was just our modern-day American church that had problems. Nope, it's even right as soon as the church started, there was problems. You know why I think there was problems? Because I'm in it. How about you? I've been invited to church. I'm allowed to come, so there's probably problems, right? We're in it, and so there are problems. And so a lot of Paul's letters were addressing specific problems those churches were having. But this letter, he never addresses a problem, and so we just get this, like, on-fire verses about the gospel, about Jesus, and it is beautiful. And last week, we, we got to hear the first 10 verses of Ephesians 1. And so last week, I said to Jake, I said, so I guess I'm just going to start in Ephesians 2, I, because he read a verse, Ephesians 2, 1, I thought we got to Ephesians 2. And so he said, you're going to skip the rest of Ephesians 1? And I said, well, you didn't even get through one chapter? <laughs> this series is going to go until 2027. But uh, no, I'm skipping. I'm skipping the rest of Ephesians 1. We're going to hop right in 
to Ephesians 2. And um, I'm actually going to read to you guys. First, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. I'm also only getting through 10 verses. I'm going to read those verses through the message translation. Now, maybe uh, you have often wondered why when preachers or people talk about the Bible and they say, we're going to be reading in this translation or we're going to be reading in this paraphrase what they're talking about. The Bible wasn't written, most likely wasn't written in the language you read it in. Unless you're reading it in ancient Hebrew or Greek, it wasn't, it was, that's what it was written in. So if you're reading your Bible in English or you're reading your Bible in Spanish, that's not what it was originally written in. So the, the Bible you are reading is a translation. That's, that's what that means. So when someone says, I'm reading the blah, blah, blah translation, that's what that means. It's pretty simple. And so there are quite a few different translations. And so what I recommend is if you say, well, then which one should I be reading? Read the one you have. You got one, read it, right? That's going to do you way better than not reading it, okay? And then my other advice is find the one that makes the most sense to you. Now, if you do that and it's a different religion, you've gone too far. So in, in the context of the Holy Bible, the Holy Scriptures, right? Um, but we can get really caught up. I only read the ones that they put in the hotel room, right? That's the only version of the Bible that I read. But I say, man, find the one that really makes sense to you. I'm going to first read out of the message paraphrase just because the words are really rich. They're really understandable. But then I'm going to teach out of the New Living Translation, which is a great translation to read um, for your everyday reading. All right, let's read these. We're going to read 10 verses together. You guys can do that, right? You guys got this. Let's read it. It says, it wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. Isn't that at least a little bit encouraging? We're all in the same boat. Well, at least we're all doing it, okay? It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with the whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He did all this on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make or save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better get, we, I couldn't read this the first service either, we had better be doing. There we go. I don't know why that one trips me up. But isn't that beautiful? This is an incredible 10 verses that Paul wrote for us. And so we're going to go through each of these verses, just kind of unpack it a little bit. And I have three pictures for you guys today to really um, just help these verses come alive to you. But let's go ahead and start reading uh, this 
again, but in a different translation. It says in verse 1, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. This is the verse that Pastor Jake read last week. And I remember just sitting right there in the seat and thinking, wow, that's an incredible picture. It's a terrifying picture, but it's an incredible picture for every single one of us that the devil is the spirit at work in my heart when I refuse to obey God. So when I refuse to obey God, something else is going on inside of me. Man, that makes me want to obey God. I don't want anything else working inside of my heart, right? Verse 3, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Who we were, the very nature of who we were was what God was, had full anger about. But just nice, remember, level playing field, we were all that way. We were all on the same playing field. Verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. I went through and I was looking at what this word mercy really means. I was going through and finding out the original word and what that word, what that mercy means. And it was saying kindness or goodwill towards the miserable and afflicted. This is what this verse is saying, is that all of us are those miserable and afflicted. But God has goodwill towards us. He has kindness towards us. And then I love this last part, joined with a desire to relieve them. You see, God sees us in our miserableness. He sees us in our affliction. And he doesn't just say, man, that stinks. Man, I feel for you. Sometimes we do that for people, huh? We see people hurting, we see people afflicted, and we think, man, I feel for them. But that's not what God did. He didn't just say, man, I feel bad for them. It says he was joined in them, to joined with a desire to relieve them. He did something. He said, I'm going to make a new story. I'm going to relieve them of this affliction. I'm going to relieve them of this misery. That's what mercy is. So whenever we hear in the Bible, God has mercy on you. He's saying he made a way for you no longer to have to be miserable and afflicted. He saw you and what was going on in your life, and it moved him to change history, to change things, to change things for you. Verse 5, that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Man, this is a powerful six verses that Paul has written for us. And over and over again, Paul is talking about just how dead we all were before we found Christ. Before you're a Christian, that's what he's saying, before you decide to follow Christ, we were dead. And so that brings me to my first picture for all of us. It's very encouraging picture here for us, but it's this picture of a coffin. And I was thinking about a coffin this week. You know, a coffin is a really great place for a corpse, right? You know, when you see the lid open, you usually see like some padding. I don't know how padded, because I refuse to find out. Someone during services was telling me, I think think a coffin seems nice. And I was like, I don't want to know. Thank you. I'm not tempting feet at all. I'm not going to like try it out and someone shut the, shut the thing, lock it, right? No, no, I'm not tempting. 
the fate, right? But a coffin seems like a really great place for a dead person. It's dark. It's peaceful. It's quiet. It's got some padding there, right? It's a nice place. And so this is what Paul is saying, is that we were all dead before we had Jesus. In fact, Spurgeon says, our new life is as truly created out of nothing as were the first heavens and the first earth. This ought to be particularly noticed, for there are some who think that the grace of God improves the old nature into the new. It does nothing of the sort. What is Spurgeon saying here? He's saying that a lot of times in our head we think, hey, I was kind of not great. Okay, I was pretty good, but I need a little help. And then when I became a Christian, when Jesus came in my life, I got a little better. Or, man, yeah, I I had made some mistakes. Maybe like Bob Ross painting, right? Little mistakes. We're just going to cover them up. We're going to cover up the little mistakes. And Jesus came in my life, and he made those mistakes better. But what Paul is saying and what Spurgeon is saying is, no, you weren't bad, and God made you good. You were dead, and God made you alive. You were completely dead. You were a corpse. You were in the coffin. There was no hope for you. There was no life for you. There was no breath for you. And when you gave your life to Jesus, you became a whole new creation. He didn't just make you incrementally better. Christianity isn't just about making your life a little bit better. It's not just like a Boy Scouts kind of thing where now you can be good at starting a fire. No, you were dead. You were lost. You had no hope. And when Jesus came, he made you into a brand new person. Spurgeon is saying the words when it says a new creation are the same words than when God created the world. That's how new you are. That's why when you become a Christian, you give your life to Jesus and you begin to change and people begin to say, you're different. Yeah, that's right. I'm very different. In fact, I'm completely new. I'm not like I was before. I'm a new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the old, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're a new creation. When you give your life to Jesus, you are made new. The old has passed away. You know what that means? It means that the the things that were comfortable in a coffin when you were dead should feel horrifying once you're alive. Right? That darkness now feels suffocating. Like I said earlier, I don't even want to tempt fate. I don't even want to lay in a coffin. I don't even want to tempt it. Why? Because I'm not dead and I don't want to be buried. I don't want to be dead. Now everything that I did or I thought of or the way that I made decisions when I was in darkness, when I was dead, I don't want to do those anymore. And they should feel suffocating. They should feel like darkness because now I am new. Because I'm not that person anymore. I'm not dead anymore. And so the works of darkness, I don't want to do them anymore. I want to live in a new life because God has made me new. Those things should feel suffocating. Those things should feel like death. I am now alive. And I have a new way that God wants me to live my life. A new way that I find out I should live my life. So going on in verse 7, it says, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us and shown in all he has done for us who are united in Christ Jesus. I love this verse. Basically, this verse is saying God is doing such a good work in you. He is making you so great so that he can point to you and say, look how good I did. Look how great I am. 
Look at how awesome I did, right? That is so cool that God wants to make out of you something he can brag about. Not that we can brag about, right? Because we didn't do it. We had nothing to do with it. But God wants to transform you into something so amazing that he can point to you in the heavens and be like, look at how good I am. Look at how much I saved them. Look at how awesome they are. Look at who they now are, who I created them to be. And then it says in verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for it. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Paul says this in these nine verses over and over and over. You had nothing to do with it. Salvation has nothing to do with you. It's not about how good you are. It's not about you being, you know, just a little bit bad and he made you a little bit better, right? No, we don't talk about a corpse being bad or good, right? A corpse is just done. Leonard Ravenhill said, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men alive. So we had nothing to offer God We have nothing to add to salvation, and that's what Paul is saying over and over, and that brings me to my second picture for you today. This is a picture of our dog, Cricket. (laughs) One day, I was sitting in the living room, just sitting there, and Cricket came around the corner in the room like this, and I was like, interesting. (laughs) What, What happened to you, dog? Right? So I obviously grabbed my phone to take a picture, and she stared at me like, why did you bring me in a home with three children? Now, what's interesting, when I saw Cricket, our dog, I, didn't, I thought, oh, my kids put a cape on the dog. Obviously. You know, you guys thought I was smart, right? That, that you guys are like, yeah, your deduction skills, Bethany, really good. You know what I didn't think? I didn't think, oh, wow, it's King Charles. <laughs> my goodness, royalty. Oh, Cricket, I've never seen you in this light before. Wow, I, I shouldn't be feeding you dog food. You should be getting filet mignon. You're obviously royalty. You're obviously someone I should be, um, you know, deferring to, right? No, I clearly knew this is my dog wearing a silly cape. It doesn't change the dog's food. It doesn't change the dog's life, except now I think you're even cuter, Cricket, than I thought you were before. But you know what? This, when I was thinking about this verse, about how we don't add anything to salvation, I was thinking about this picture, it was brought to my mind. Because this is kind of how we, we can sometimes act. Is we, we, we get saved and we think, oh, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Or at least I never did that. Or you know what, now I'm reading my Bible every day. And we start to do things that we think is going to change the way that God looks at us. Or we start to have these behaviors where we think, well, at least God didn't have to save me as much as he had to save that person. You know, we have like this scale of, of being saved. You know, if I'm drowning, right, in the water, I just want to be saved. I don't care if I'm 10 feet from the boat, 100 feet from the boat, 700,000 feet from the boat, right? Someone please just save me no matter where I am, no matter the scale. Only us humans have that scale. And what Paul is saying over and over in this verse is that there is no scale. You're all in the same boat. You're all in trouble. We all had God's wrath coming upon us. Every single human, we were born into this. This is our nature. This is who we are. And it doesn't matter if you put a cape on. God doesn't say, oh, wow, yeah, you're right. You were better. You were easier to save. No, we have nothing to do with our salvation. Jesus did it all. 
Jesus did it all. Remember what it said in the message. He does all the making. He does all the saving. We had absolutely nothing to do with it. And so we can't, we can't do anything to make it better. But a humble person says, Lord, I had nothing to do with it, but I'm so grateful. I'll take it all. I see how bad I was. I see how bad I am. And I'm thankful that you made a way for me. And I'll take it all. But God wants all the credit for salvation. We don't get any of the credit for salvation. It says in Isaiah 64, we are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. What this verse is saying is that you, when you have your very best day, when you're like, I did it today, Lord. I did so good. I heard this older uh, Christian one time, a long time ago, amazing man, say, I know today I haven't sinned. And I was like, whoa. I like sin as soon as I wake up. I'm like, here we are, day. Oh, shoot, messed up, you know. Already, already got off on the wrong foot, okay? But even on your very best day where you thought I did it today, it's still like filthy rags. And even as that picture of cricket, as ridiculous as it is, it's, it's the same kind of ridiculousness that we have when we say, God, look how good I did. Look at how I'm adding. God, you barely have to save me. God, I'm already doing so great. And God's saying, even at your very best, it's like filthy rags. That's how good. It's not God being mean to you. It's how good God is. It's how righteous he is. It's how holy he is. It's not a testament of, of him saying you did so bad. No, it's a testament of him saying this, the standard is way bigger and better than you ever even could think about. And I already paid it all for you. And I already did it all the way for you. So then we go to our last verse, verse 10. It says, for we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. What a beautiful ending to these 10 verses. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You know, my third picture is this sculpture of the veiled virgin. And um, this kind of art is so fascinating to me because this is one piece of Carrera marble. I'm probably saying that wrong. No one corrected me in between services, so you can correct me later. This is like if you're remodeling your home, this is like the, model, the marble you're trying to convince that you have enough money for to put on your countertops, right? Well, back in the, in the 1800s, they would take these big slabs, right? And they would make something incredible like this. This is one piece of stone. That's incredible. And this, this, uh, at this time, there was a big renaissance going on of this kind of art where the sculpture would have a veil, appear to have a veil over the top of it. But there is nothing on it. It's all one piece of marble. And so I looked it up. I actually Googled. I was like, how do... Me and Google. How do they do it? How do the sculptors make the, the statue look like there's a veil? And guess what Google told me? Carefully. <laughs> it said they do it carefully. I was like, okay, so I'm not cut out to do it. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> because I don't understand at all how that works, right? 
But it's incredible. In uh, Giovanni Strazza, he's the one who, who made this, and he's a renowned Italian sculptor. And you may have really never heard of him because this is really his most famous piece. This is the most famous thing that he did. And when he gifted this to the place that he was gifting it, this is what they said about it. To say that this representation surpasses in perfection of art, any piece of sculpture we have ever seen conveys but weakly our impression of its exquisite beauty. The possibility of such a triumph of the chisel had not before entered our conception. Ordinary language must ever fail to do justice to the subject like this, to the rare artistic skill and to the emotions it produces to the beholder. And in fact, when you look up um, veiled sculptures, this is usually crowned as the most um, incredible because of the detail you can see of, her, the braid, of the braids in her hair, of her eyes, of her nose. This is supposed to be of the Virgin Mary. And that's stone. And we look at it and we think, that's incredible. And this quote is saying, no, it's masterful. And yet that's what God, Paul is saying, God says about you. He's, he says, we are God's masterpiece. He's not saying the universal you, you know, you guys, whatever. No, he's saying you today in Eugene, sitting in the seat at Joy Church. You personally, you are God's masterpiece. You are God's masterpiece. He has created you new in Christ Jesus so that you can do the good things he planned for you long ago. What an incredible honor for every single one of us. Timothy Keller says, do you know what it means that you are God's workmanship? What is art? Art is beautiful. Art is valuable. Art is an expression of the inner being of the maker, of the artist. Imagine what that means. You're beautiful. You're valuable. And you're an expression of the very inner being of the artist, the divine artist, God himself. You see, when Jesus gave himself on the cross, he didn't say, I'm going to die just so you know I love you. He said, I'm going to die. I'm going to bleed for your splendor. I'm going to recreate you into something beautiful. I will turn you into something splendid, magnificent. I'm the artist. You're the art. I'm the painter. You're the canvas. I'm the sculptor. You're the marble. You don't look like much there in the quarry, but I can see. Oh, I can see. Jesus is an artist, and you, beloved, are his crowning achievement, his masterpiece. What an incredible honor for every single one of us. But can you imagine if the veiled virgin, this big piece of marble, was sitting there and Giovanni has the chisel and he's chiseling away and it took him a few years, right, to make this masterpiece? What if the veiled virgin started to say to, the, to Giovanni, no, you're doing it wrong. No, I, I didn't know it was going to hurt this much. I didn't want to do this. Oh, I didn't think you were going to do it that way. Braids, I never wanted braids. And yet that's what we do with the Lord. We begin to argue. We begin to say, God, what are you doing? 
What are you doing? And what Paul is saying here is you are God's masterpiece. And over your life, he is writing something beautiful out of you. In fact, this word, if you look it up in the Greek, the word masterpiece, it's actually the word poema, which is where we get our English word poem from. So what this Paul is really saying is you are God's poem he's writing. God is writing a poem out of your life. Will you let him do it? Will you let God write the poem he's trying to write out of your life? Johnny Erickson Tata was a, a writer in the 70s, wrote a bunch of Christian books. And she actually, when she was 17 years old, she jumped into a pool and she, uh, there was an accident and she became completely quadriplegic. So the prime of her life, all of a sudden a big change in her story and her books are so beautiful because she talks about how good God is. And she wrote this. She says, God has a plan and purpose for my time on earth. He is the master artist or sculptor. And he is the one who chooses the tools he will use to perfect his workmanship. What of suffering then? What of illness? What of disability? Am I to tell him which tools he can use and which tools he can't use in the lifelong task of perfecting me and molding me? into the beautiful image of Jesus? Do I really know better than him so I can state without equivocation that it's always his will to heal me of every physical affliction? If I am his poem, do I have the right to say, no, Lord, you need to trim the line, number two, and brighten up lines three and five. They're just a little bit dark. Do I, the poem, the thing being written, no more, than the poet. Do we know better than the poet? If we are the art and not the artist, then it's our job as Christians to just submit to what the artist is trying to write in your life. That we say, God, I don't understand this part. I don't understand what you're doing right now, but I'm submitted to you. I'm staying on the shelf that the artist is working on. I'm going to stay close to you until you're done writing the poem. And you know when he's done writing the poem? It's when we die. It's when we're done or when Jesus comes back, right? That's the end. Throughout our life, we are being formed into the image of Jesus. We're being formed into who he is. Will we submit to the artist? Will we submit to what he's doing? So today, I really feel like every single one of us can find ourselves in one of these three pictures. And maybe you're, you're find yourself the most in the veiled virgin. And you say, yeah, God has been writing this poem of my life, but I'm in this part right now that I don't understand or I don't like. Or I'm watching God write a poem in a family member and I don't like what he's writing. Our job is to say, God, you're the artist. I put my faith and my trust in you, not only for salvation. I put my faith and trust in him every day for the way that he is letting my life unfold for the way that he is telling me to grow, for the ways that he is challenging me in my life. I, every day I say, God, I submit to you. You're the artist. I'm just the art. Or maybe you find yourself more in the picture of cricket, where maybe you've been trying to add some good works to help God save you a little better. Or you've been trying to, you know, pay your bill a little bit by the way that you're acting. God wants you to know today you can't do any of it. So you need to accept all of it. We don't add anything to our salvation. We just humbly say, God, I didn't make myself and I can't save myself. You do it all and I accept it all. 
You see, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, I don't listen to the Lord and and try to be like him. I don't do that so that he'll save me or that he'll love me. I do that because I've experienced his great love, because I've experienced his great salvation, and that makes me want to be like him. The more I know him, the more I know of his great love, the more I want to have my life look like him, the closer I want to be to him, the more I want to say, I don't want to live in the coffin I want to be alive. So I'm not adding good works in order that he would love me or that he would save me. I just want to be with him. I just want to be like him. I just want to do my best to have him use me every day. And I know I can't add anything. Or maybe you found yourself more like the coffin. And you said, yeah, I've been way too comfortable with the darkness been way too comfortable with the suffocation and God has already made me new I already know I'm alive in Christ and I'm not made for that world anymore maybe you've become too comfortable with the things of the world we all do this so you're not thinking oh that's terrible maybe I'm dead again no we all start to we're in this world so we all start to get a little bit too comfortable with things and we have to be reminded no that's not what I'm made for I don't want to live in darkness anymore because I've been made new. So I just really ask that every person in this room, that you won't just leave this place, but you'll let God speak to you. Let God speak to you to know what your next steps are. Maybe you already know him. You knew as soon as I put up the picture. You knew as soon as I read the verse. You already knew what God was speaking to you. But if you don't, I just ask you to ask the Lord, God, what is my next step today? How can I be more of your poem How can I be more of who you want me to be? And maybe you're in this room and you say, you talk about the coffin and I've never become alive. You see, we believe that when you say, Jesus, I recognize I did not make myself and I cannot save myself. That when we do that, we're saying, Jesus, would you make me alive? And that he doesn't come and just make you a little bit better. Christianity isn't something we just add to our life like a club. No, it's a complete transformation. It's a dead body. It's a corpse that is then made completely new in Christ Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus today, if everyone would just bow your head and close your eyes, we want to give you a chance to know him. We want to give you a chance to put your faith in him. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And the more that I know him, the better he even is. He's even better than I thought he was. If you don't know Jesus today and you would like to put your faith and trust in him, would you just lift up your hand for me? Everyone's eyes are bowed, everyone's or heads are closed, whatever opposite way I said that. Nobody's looking around. We're not trying to embarrass you, but we're going to give you a chance to put an act of physical faith in Jesus. So if you would just lift up your hand right now so we can see. Anyone says, I'm going to give my life to Jesus today. I want to put my faith and trust in him. Thank you. Anybody else? This isn't the end of the story. This is the very beginning of a new life in Jesus. A new life where he makes you completely new. Right now we're going to say a prayer. I'm going to ask everybody to pray this with me. It's just a way for you to vocalize that you're putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for creating me, and thank you for saving me. God, I can't save myself. I need you. God, I've done wrong. Will you forgive me? You're the only one who can. 
forgive me and help me be like you. I'm putting my faith and trust in you, in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.